Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. Today I have a special show for you. Over the past few years I've interviewed many brilliant musicians, composers and others in the classical music world. However, I realised that the one person I haven't had an in-depth discussion with was my co-host, conductor, musicologist and performer based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Jacob Keynes. So I thought it would be great to interview him and amazingly he agreed. So welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast as a guest, Jacob. I'm so thrilled to be here. It feels uh, both very much the exact same, but also kind of fun and exciting and new. So this is great. (laughs) Well, as you know, we always start off by asking our guests to talk about themselves and say something with a little bit of background um, in whatever whatever way they wish. So over to you. Yeah, so I uh, usually say I'm a a conductor and a musicologist. Uh, Primarily, that's what I do. So I uh, teach it. Uh, Dalhousie University here in Halifax University, but I teach here as a conductor and musicologist, which is kind of my formal training. I did um, undergrad in conducting and a master's in musicology, um, but increasingly more and more, which is kind of uh, one of the the fun offshoots of this podcast, um, or where the the podcast has come from is an offshoot of this. Um, My research is in queer performance and city-inspired queer performance and how um, queer communities within urban centers create art and work through artistic process and how they interact with each other and how um, queer performers build network across cities and across uh, different spaces. And so the podcast uh, is a good example of how queer musicians are increasingly, queer people in general, but queer musicians are um increasingly less and less defined by boundaries and borders and communities and cities. Um, And we're building uh, networks across uh, all sorts of different mediums. And so one way is by uh, talking with people online. But uh, a lot of the time I talk about um, where queer music goes. And so uh, in my research, I talk a lot about where someone's queer music gets performed by non-queer people. Uh, by queer people um, in a queer context, but in a straight space, all the kind of different things. Um, And so that's uh, where my doctoral research is. And so I I work through um, that material at a university in Quebec uh, called Concordia. Um, But generally speaking, yeah, I like to say conductor musicologist, but kind of more and more other things. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to go through all your PhD work in this podcast, <laughs> but I mean, um, I, I mean, when you started this, you must have had your PhD. This must have had some idea of of kind of what to expect. Has anything come out which has really surprised you? I, I mean, I wouldn't say surprised because that maybe makes it sound like I didn't do enough uh, background work beforehand. <laughs> but but I think I. I think I was expecting to focus much more on um, kind of closed communities and so so closed networks of musicians living in one space or, you know, things like, you know, the the quo, the Queer Ribbon Orchestra in New York. I was kind of thinking of them as a 
self-contained thing that I would uh, research a group of people who lived in a place and who did one thing and that that would be kind of a case study. And the further I get into this, the more I realize that that is like maybe true, but is mostly a fallacy that it's um, a much broader and much more pieced out network of people across many, many different places um, and times. I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about with, uh, music from different eras being played by current contemporary artists and people who are writing things now that get played in different cities and people who travel as musicians and people who exist only online as musicians. I think uh, that's been the surprising thing in, in my research is that it isn't nearly as geolocated as I thought it would be. Um, I think there's a increasingly like diffuse idea of like a gayberhood that, that these things are less and less um, reality, whether that's good or not is like, it's its own thing. I think we all kind of miss uh, gayberhoods, but uh, musically, I think it's also true that like there are, there are more and more ways that queer people are connecting and making music online in different ways. Um, mm. And I don't think I was expecting that. I think I was expecting it to be much more, yeah, contained. Hmm. I, I know that in a lot of uh, music making that I've I've seen, is that you know there's a lot of uh, a huge increase recently in, in online collaborations. You know where people share their music or share parts of music or stems of music, and then they add to them and do this kind of thing. So, so I guess is this is the kind of thing which is is really taken off, maybe even the last three or four years, maybe. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the past. Uh three or four years, it's, it's increased. I mean, we started the podcast two and a bit years ago, which is certainly part and parcel of that too. Like we don't live in the same country even, let alone same city. Um, and most of the people that we talk with were never in the same place as them mm. either. And so even though we're not creating necessarily together, um, we're adding to that discourse of queer music making. But I think we've only done... I don't know, three where I've been in the same place with somebody um, yeah. Yeah. at the same time. And so it just kind of proves that there's, there's more and more ways that we can interact and do interact. And it actually feels quite natural. It feels um, not that strange to talk to somebody in um, Manchester and then Sydney, Australia, and then Quebec. Like it, it really actually feels quite normal. Do, do you think this has affected the music itself? I mean, uh, you know, do you think uh, that this kind of um, difference between having, uh, you know, as you say, a, a gayberhood <laughs> where you, where people actually got together and now having this more uh, diverse, diffuse environment has actually changed the music we're hearing? I, I think so. I mean, I think, and it's not queer specific, I think it's changing music and everything across the board, but I think we... You know, if I think of like a conservatory system, there's there's a really long held idea that, um, you know, a composition class, let's say, uh, who takes lessons for four years with one composition prof, they all kind of sound the same um, and they all have kind of a similar vocabulary that they're drawing on. So like, you know, um, Cogliano in at Juilliard, like super famous pedagogue and, and composition teacher, 
And all of his students are phenomenal, but you can kind of tell that they're his students. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but more and more, I think that we're, we're, we're blurring the lines around that. And so you might have a teacher and you might be able to like draw out certain vocabulary from them, but you're also having conversations with somebody in Australia and Vienna and Vancouver and South America. And, and so somebody in Sao Paulo is telling you, oh, well, when I write music, I do this, 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 this. And like, I try and create these types of sounds. And so somebody in London is recreating that, whether or not their teacher told them to, mm. or whether or not it's what they're listening to. It may not even be being performed in that city by an orchestra, but you can hear it somewhere else and you can talk with that composer. And I think there's a difference between, um, you know, it probably in the past, let's say 50 to 60 years, you could listen to music from around the world. That, that's not um, terribly groundbreaking, but you had to go find it yourself or it had to be given to you or um, you just encountered it, but you also didn't get to have a discussion with it. Like you mm -hmm. got to listen to it and maybe emulate it, but you certainly weren't talking to the composer. You weren't talking to them in real time. You didn't get to interact with them. but you know, now you can hop on a Zoom call, and like talk with the composer and they're going to chat with you about their music. And I think it is changing everything. Yeah. I mean, I remember a couple of the pod, in a couple of the podcasts, we've talked to people who've also, you know, talked to um, other groups outside the non-class, outside the classical um, genre. And and they fed things in. I think it was um, Florence Anamordes was talking about dubstep or something. And, mm. and there was other people bringing other things in. And I guess this is another thing as well. It's it's enabled sounds to come not just from the classical world but other worlds into into our music. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and I mean, Florence is a good example of that. And then there's so many people that draw on a whole bunch of sounds that normally in quote-unquote classical music, we wouldn't draw. There's so much mm. more influence from the outside, which I think is a mm. huge positive. I mean, other people would disagree, but yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, I, mean, I was actually, when you sent me some music over to listen to, um, one of the things you sent me was had some extra bits on the end, and one of them was from a student thing, and there was a, a nice bit in there with the student ripping up newspaper and stomping around the stage and this kind of thing. And I think that was brilliant. Taking in these extra sounds, just sounds of the environment into the music it is kind of so fascinating. And it's, it's great that the young people are taking this in, I think. I do too. I mean, I, I like as a pedagogue, as a conductor, I, I think it's really important for students to uh, experiment with all versions of sound. I think that's um, really crucial, whether or not they enjoy it or like it, or if they find it silly or if, uh, they find it kind of pedantic or whatever, and they do. <laughs> like sometimes, sometimes they they find it all of those things. Um, I mean, sometimes they love it. That, that's not to say mm. they don't enjoy making weird sounds. But I think it's really important to uh, remind them that all sounds are all intentional sounds are music. And so, if you're choosing to make that sound, that's that's part of our music. Mm lexicon and so you may not like it or you may um you know not want to sit down and listen to an hour <laughs> of someone ripping music and like ripping paper and stomping but like it is 
part of that creative process. And, you know, from my, my queer researcher brain, that is queering of music. Like that is taking the, the normative and removing expectation and making something queered on stage. Sexuality aside, like that, that queering of, um, expectation, that queering of what am I going to see in a concert hall? What sounds am I going to hear? Um, how is the ensemble going to interact with the audience? Uh, to me, that's super important. I think having expectations be challenged is really good. I think, uh, seeing and hearing things on stage that you don't normally hear really good. I think it's healthy. Uh, I think it's how we explore. I think it's how we get new sounds. Um, but I also think it's kind of silly and fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, when you start listening to these pieces, there's always something I think you can take from every single little piece, even if it's, as you say, music you don't like or sounds you don't like or whatever. So, so it, it but there's something in there. There's always something that's fascinating, even if it's something you dislike, I guess. I mean, oh yeah. I kind of so, so that, that's you. That's what you do, PhD. Let's talk a bit about your conducting, because that's the other major part of your of what you do. Spend most of your time on. Yeah. Um, um, tell us about um, who you're conducting for at the moment and the various groups that you're working. So I do uh, conducting with the Dalhousie Wind Ensemble. So that's my kind of um, main university job, and so they're an undergraduate uh, group. Um, sometimes we have community members, but generally speaking, they're undergrads who are studying classical music um and then i'm kind of just a conductor for hire for kind of whatever whatever happens uh so sometimes it's uh community groups i do a lot of clinicking um master classes uh wandering around to high schools and different um, youth orchestras and things and conducting um them for an afternoon or a couple days uh sometimes it's pro groups um with uh just kind of ad hoc ensembles and uh, mm. occasionally I'll conduct with Alkali who we're listening to mm. a fair amount today, but mostly I'm a clarinetist with them, but sometimes I'll conduct them. Um, but they're a group of professional musicians who all live in, in Halifax. But um, yeah, most of my conducting is, it, it's kind of funny. It's um, pretty straight laced in terms of who I work with and most of the music that I get to conduct but what I tend to try and do is take what it, what is pretty normal music and make it much more interesting by presentation or mm. how it's paired with something or maybe it's staged with something or maybe uh, I'm a really big believer in interdisciplinary arts so most of um, what I conduct will have theatrical element or a lighting element or a projection element or uh, there's a spatial element where we move around a space or it's wow. interspersed with poetry or there's a film element we kind of do it all that's kind of interesting because do you find that um your students uh, when they start find that a difficult thing to understand i mean you know i can imagine that these people want to come and they want to be a you know orchestral player and now we've got th film and theater involved in it oh yeah there's yeah. there's always a uh it's it's funny. I, I see them for four years at a time, the the university students, and so uh, the first years are always very skeptical. Second years are semi skeptical, but third and fourth years kind of know the deal and they're they're on board. 
um, but it takes them a couple years. I mean, we've done in the past couple years because of the pandemic, we've had to kind of scale back, but we've done some weird, weird shows uh, <laughs> where they they really had to suspend what they were expecting to do in in a wind ensemble. I mean, we had a show uh, five years ago, six years ago, where we were in uh, concurrently in different rooms of an old Victorian house. Uh, and the audience wandered through the house and listened to us play in different rooms at the same time, but it was paired with um, a synchronized light show. So uh, there was oh. one light designer who was standing kind of in the center of the house, controlling oh. all of these different rooms. And so you would listen to us play with a light show, and then you would, if the light show would switch, our music would switch as you wandered through rooms. Um, and then we'd be poets in different rooms and, it was lovely, but it was a very much uh, not a traditional wind ensemble concert. Yeah, but that sounds kind of fun. I remember, wasn't it? Um, somebody was telling us about uh, was it the um, walking around the rooms actually with the orchestra. Do you remember that? Somebody we had a guest on who was going around, and they had um, the music was on the walls, and oh, uh, in it, and, right. and they were wandering around the room with it. I kind of like this idea of of, mm. of a different environment and different rooms for different things kind of you know it's a bit like having art you know an art picture in a different room and and you feel differently yeah. so having the music in a different room makes you feel different i think yeah it was yeah. a lot of fun but it does it does require a lot more of the students it's yeah. I, I think the students expect to kind of do that traditional orchestral thing of like sit down the music's on the stand there's a stand light the lights go down you play your part you get up you bow and leave my ethos is those um that that method of music making is really rare now it it does exist i mean there are orchestras that that do that for sure but the number of students who are ever going to get a job like that is so few hmm. not to say they're not talented not to say they're not good it's just there are very few of those jobs and so we're kind of doing a disservice as educators to tell them that that's mm. to train them in the way that that is what they're going to do. Cause they're probably not one in a hundred might. Um, mm. In reality, they're going to play for uh, the pit band of some musical, and then they're going to do some new music and they're going to play like a jazz gig outside at a gazebo. And then they're going to teach some lessons and then they're going to, um, you know, play piano for a dance class. Like that's much more the realistic route for musicians, at least in North America. Uh, and so I, I try and give them a much more real <laughs> experience. I think that's an interesting approach because I think, uh, I mean, you know, as you know, I, I'm, I'm a physicist by training. And one of the things that there's always a criticism of physicists is that when they teach, they're teaching that top 1% that are going on to be, you know, famous physicists and this mm -hmm. kind of thing and not the rest that aren't going to be that, but are still, mm -hmm. you know, require some education. And and so it's important to give this broader perspective, I think. And and that sounds kind of, kind of great, really, to do that. Yeah, and, and maybe it's because we're in music and we can do that. I don't know what that would look like uh, at training physicists. Like, I don't know if there's a way to do the the kind of more practical on the ground. Um, oh, we love explosions. So it's yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Maybe that. Maybe that's what you need to switch to. Maybe that's what you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, interesting. Well, let, let's. Um, I think it's time we listen to a piece of music. Now, the music we're going to hear, at least the, the first couple of pieces, with the your alkali group. And I think the first one is called Explosions by Holly Winter. Um, and you were um, both playing in this and you were conducting, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Or just playing? Just playing. So this is a piece called Nothing to Do with Explosions by Holly Winter, who is a local composer to hear. Um, Holly is from Halifax, um, but lives in Newfoundland, just a couple of provinces further east. Um, and Holly is a young up-and-coming composer. Uh, I think they just finished their masters. Um, this piece is uh, for small ensembles, so I think there's seven of us playing, if I remember right. Um, but it comes with a full soundtrack and a video projection as well. And so the audience gets to watch the video play by, as well as hear the audio, um, and then have the acoustic instruments kind of blend in. Um, but in the, the acoustic parts, we have vocal parts. So there's audio that's happening where Holly is speaking, but then there's audio where we're yelling things, mm. adding to the texture acoustically. Um, but this is with the, the alkali group. Yeah, so I'm playing clarinet. Okay, brilliant. Well, let's take a listen.
So that was um, Explosions by Holly Winter. Um, I, I love this piece. And I think also one of the things you mentioned was the fact that you've got all these things going on. You've got the, the graphical score. You've got the, the sort of the images. You've got the different voices. You've got people shouting and this kind of thing. How, how difficult was it to get all that together? I mean, it's, it, you know, a synchronization issue with films and videos and this kind of thing. Quite, <laughs> in the sense that it was also... It's also timed, um, obviously, because the, the video is, is a finite thing. And so our parts are also timed, but it's also a graphic score. So there's no pitch uh, written. And so the score is being played on the, the screen behind us, but we have it in front of us too. But it's um, color-based. And so um, Holly has uh, written this score where certain colors have different meanings. And so you follow uh, a a, a line track on on the page physically like the higher voice parts are at the top of the page lower voice parts are at the bottom um and sometimes there's little squiggles sometimes there's little uh dots or words or text but it's all on colored paper um the score itself is actually very beautiful like it's a piece of uh 
art into, into itself. It's not like, um, when I say that the score is colorful, I don't mean it's on a piece of red construction paper and then blue. <laughs> it's it is like, very colorful. Yeah, it is. It's actually yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's like a beautiful gradient of, of colors and it's very uh, highly designed. Um, so it is really hard to coordinate um, where everything goes. And also, as you heard, there's a point where everything cuts, um, mm -hmm. which this is one of those like uh, behind the scenes music things. Like, when it goes well, you don't even think that that would be a difficult thing. Um, but to be able to do that well and to have that actual cut happen altogether is incredibly difficult to time and coordinate. And so we had many, many rehearsals where we just did the 10 seconds leading up to that over and over and over. Mm. And so that we could hear where the cut had to happen. Because if you overplay it, the cut really doesn't yeah. have an effect. It's not a cut. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I mean I think that was one of the great things is that it is you, you got it right in this one. It, the timing was great and, and I mean it just is such a sudden cut that I think it, it, it that's the you know the the um the strength of it. Obviously if some if any one person overruns it's just not gonna work. Yeah it really takes yeah. the wind out of the sails. But it um it went well. We uh we had done this piece once before in another hall. Um in a much, much smaller hall uh, from this recording. And it was a lot easier to do because <laughs> you could hear the audio track a lot better. Um, mm. When we're sitting on this stage, which is a much larger stage, it was just difficult to hear. And of course the projection is behind us, video. Mm. Uh, so you can't actually see either. And so you're really relying on your stopwatch and uh, listening. Did, I mean, honestly, I got to ask this: because Did you really time it with a stopwatch? Did you really have? I mean, oh, yeah. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we have a. a I thought system. it was all done by ear. I thought you were all just, you know, you just were so synced up together. Well, I mean, there's there's certain points where you're listening for sure, but um, to I think the piece is five minutes, maybe mm. it's exactly yeah. five minutes or something like that, but. Um, each section is 30 seconds. And so there's no way to like internally count 30 seconds while you're, you're playing. So we have a system where we all uh, breathe together and start our stopwatch at the same time. And then we, we play. Oh, I see little tricks. See, this is the kind of thing that I think is really interesting to talk to somebody who, who plays in a small group like this, mm -hmm. because for people outside, we have, no idea how you do some of these things and and kind of i think we always feel it's some sort of like you know um brain wave synchronization thing but it but it's it's good that there's a stopwatch i kind of i kind of feel a bit cheated but it's kind of nice i mean <laughs> yeah. i mean sometimes it is but often it's actually just it's the most mundane uh answer to it it's usually a stopwatch and sometimes we've actually had uh a, a group stopwatch as in uh, mm. someone puts a laptop in front of us and there's one person controlling it. We all just look at the same thing. Um, but then you have to have somebody do that. Usually easier just to have your phone on your stand. And... Now, now with this particular piece, I mean, I know with a lot of these graphical scores, there's like instruction about how much, you know, sort of your deviation ability from the score. So for this particular piece, how, how much freedom did you have in terms of your your pitch or timing and this kind of thing? Um, not not as much as you might think. It's it's pretty prescribed. Um, so Holly was pretty clear about um, 
you know, certain colors meaning, um, like for my, my part, like growls and, um, multiphonics and like gross sounds or it being like high whistle tone, really, mm. um, breathy high whistle. Like it, it's pretty prescribed. Um, but normally in graphic score world, yeah, it, it really is just whatever that looks, feels like to you, you can, uh, make that yeah. sound. But this one is actually pretty, pretty well defined. I'm going to have to ask you what what's a growl on a clarinet? I mean, what what does that sound like? I mean, is it yeah? Is it so there's yeah. I mean, there's there's kind of two two different ways to make it. You can either um, flutter tongue, flutter zonk, uh, and you and you roll your tongue like a rolled R um, into the clarinet as you make a pitch, and so the uh, air fluctuates at that really fast time, and so it comes out like a growl. But that is uh, technically fairly difficult to do. And also some people can't genetically flutter their tongue. Mm. And so uh, the workaround is you can do it with the back of the tongue as well and do it okay. that way. Or you can't do either of those. If you sing the same pitch that you're playing, mm. it will uh, interfere with the pitch and you get uh, that's nice, the same thing. I, by the way, I'm here busy trying to flutter the front of my tongue now. Luckily, Thank nobody you. can see this. And, no. no. I can't I, even think how to do it. I can't even think how it, uh, uh, No. If you do, the, like, um, the, uh, like, can no. you roll your R's? <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That, yeah. That's, oh, hey. Yeah. Okay. That's All right. <laughs> we learned so many things on this show. I can now... <laughs> Flutter tongue, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, uh, yeah. So that was the graphical score. So, so really fantastic. And you said there's a lot of vocal inputs and outputs in there as well. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. vocal yeah. things going on as well. Um, yeah. So, kind of a really nice piece. Um, the next piece we're going to hear is again by the Alkali Group. And this is Mizzy Mazzoli, who I love Mizzy Mazzoli's music, I must admit, already. So we're already pushing on an open door here. I, I play some of the music on the show. And this is called uh, Still Life with Avalanche. So do you say a few words about that before we listen to it? Yeah. So this is uh, Mizzy Mazzoli's um, piece. And I, I did include it because I know you like it. Um, and so I, but I also really love this piece. I mean, we, um, we work very hard on this piece. Uh, it's a very difficult one to get put together. When you listen to Missy Mazzoli's work, it's, um, again, deceiving in, it doesn't sound terribly difficult, mm -hmm. but it is actually very, very, very difficult to, to play. Um, there are very complex, uh, time changes, meter changes. Um, and things are shifting. There's a lot of, uh, really nebulous time that sounds like it's free and floaty, but it's actually incredibly precise and counted, even though it sounds like it's all just kind of floating. So when you listen to it, there's this opening bit at the, uh, very start with a bunch of harmonicas mm. and people are playing what sounds like very just slowly shifting. It might be a graphic score, um, harmonic parts. But it's actually 
underneath, but it sounds like just like a board <laughs> that's kind of floating. Um, but that's a hallmark of Missy Mazzoli, that it actually is very, very complex in its construction, but sounds um, just kind of fun and light. Mm. But this is Missy Mazzoli's uh, Still Life with Avalanche. Yeah, let's take a listen.
Okay, so that was the uh, Mizzy Mazzoli piece, Still Life with Avalanche. Um, uh, one of the things I, I, I found, as you say, it, was, it's a, it sounds very simple. I mean, not very simple. It sounds simple in its context, but, but it's very difficult. It, it sounds to me, and I mean, this is not maybe very scientific, but there were a lot of different melodies in this, all kind of like, I guess I would say tripping over. It sounded like, you know, you'd have one and then another one and then another, and, and it would always be stutter starting and this kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, first of all, is that true? <laughs> because it sounds oh, yeah, like very that. much so. Yeah. And, and, and ha I mean, you've already mentioned it's difficult to play that kind of thing. Um, but from your point of view, as you, you were clarinetist again in this, um, how did you, how do you deal with this kind of complexity? I mean, you know, is it just like, hey, I just have to learn it? I mean, I'm sure you do, but I mean, what what are the difficulties about this particular type of of music? It's it you really you really second guess yourself, and you really think that, um, oh, my line should line up with maybe the flute, and it doesn't, and you have to trust that it doesn't, and know mm. that you're you are counting correctly, you are doing the right thing. Um, it feels like maybe you started too early or you should have started later, but you didn't, but you have to really trust yourself that it, um, it will line up and it is supposed to be two things kind of happening at the same time that sound like they kind of clash or they're two different melodies that are overlap. Um, and that maybe is the hardest thing that, um, you know, there's, there's a few moments where there's a lot of rests happening people and you have to come in together with somebody else from basically nothing mm -hmm. doing something that's really different from what's already happening and you have to trust that you're all counting correctly and that when you do it you will do it together and that it's fine um but there's a lot of uh people who play chamber music this is why they play chamber music there's a lot of um interconnection and looking at each other and trying to connect and hear and do visual cues and audio cues and things. Um, and that's true of any chamber music. I mean, if you're playing Haydn, you do that. If you're playing Mozart, you do that. But when you're playing this type of stuff, uh, you're, you're looking desperately at the violinist, <laughs> um, to just give me some affirmative that I think I know where I am and you think I, you know where I am and that, yes, that is correct. We're both there together. Um, and the and poor so, violinist is lost completely, probably. <laughs> Yeah, and they're looking at you for the same thing, and you just, uh, and then and then you uh, look over at the flautist, and they confirm that you're both correct, and we move together. Like that's that's kind of what it is, but it feels very. Um, you're holding on by uh, by a rope, kind of at all times, mm -hmm. but that's kind of the fun of it. I guess so, because I, I would assume in a big orchestra, you can't. You obviously got the conductor who's doing everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but here you're sort of you're on your own, as it were, and you're you're trying to interact with a number of people. It's, yeah. One of the things you said there raised an interesting issue about um, the way we see maybe music and patterns in the sense that, you know, it is kind of difficult if you want to offset yourself from something. If you know what I mean, it's like to be out of step with something, because I think, you know, from my perspective, the brain always looks for a pattern and tries to sort of match the pattern. So. So that, I guess, is quite a deliber yeah. deliberate kind of forcing of yourself to go, no, hold on, I've got to be a, a, a fraction late here. And there's some really great examples of it. I mean, it's certainly not necessarily a new thing. Um, 
but there's some really great composers that are probably more at home names but mm. um you know percy granger has some moments mm. yes. of everything is just two people are playing but they're offset by an eighth note and it feels uncomfortable and it's supposed to feel uncomfortable but they're doing the same melody just slightly mm. off step there's um maybe less maybe less known but charles ives who's an american composer oh, yeah. who all of his music just sounds like he he took two bars of this five bars of this one bar of that seven bars of that and just put it all on the same page on top of each other um and it really sounds chaotic and um very very dense um mm. but that's just the way it's supposed to be it just sounds really overlapped i mean i guess this is a again a non-musical person here i mean sometimes if you i don't know if it's right or not but sometimes when you get music that is too precise it sounds formulaic mm. if it's slightly slightly different then it sounds like human and then mm. if it's slightly too much, it sounds this sort of you're you're now into the regime you've just said. Yeah. So so I guess you're I mean, I I guess I find this fascinating. There's this slight timing thing that can send it between chaos and computerized sounding to human in and it's all very it's all within a fraction of a beat, you know. We more and more we talk about this in the recording world of of when you listen to modern recordings, they're so highly processed and they're so mm. incredibly well rehearsed that they don't sound real and they don't sound human. And it's not that it's not a feat of musicality to sound that incredibly blended and the trumpet line perfectly is balanced and that all of the cellos come in at the exact same time and that, you know, violin line is very precise in every single one of those 20 violinists are playing it exactly the same it, it's impressive but it does sound um cleanly it, it's too um too precise and and mm. so that's why i think we love old recordings of things probably for mm. there's a little bit of dirt on it that's much better yeah it's kind of i mean i guess what i, I lo-fi approach to yeah. to some of this you know you're 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 actually blurring it a little bit and you're, 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 you know, you're not being quite perfect and it makes it, gives it that sort of more, I'd use the word organic feel to the, to the, to the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, a non-classical, well, actually I shouldn't say that he's actually writing a lot more classical music lately, but Sofian Stevens, I don't know if you uh, encountered yeah. Sofian Stevens, mostly a singer songwriter. Um, you'll never listen to this, so I'll say presumed queer, um, but not uh, actually uh, verifiably queer. But his music is extremely queer. Mm. And the beautiful thing about Sofian Stevens' music, and he writes kind of everything from um, like actual pop songs to choral music, and he just released an album of uh, solo piano music and piano duets that are... They're, they're as classical as you can get. They're like compositions in the fullest sense. Mm. But there's uh, the two albums that I really, really love. He did two albums of Christmas music. And I love Christmas music in general, but he did um, really interesting takes on Christmas music. And he's such an interesting composer and, and musician that he would take um, 
Okamokomi Manual and do seven versions of it, seven arrangements mm. on one album. Wow. Different voicings, different uh, instruments, mm. different tempos, different uh, everything. And there's there's one of the songs that he kind of uh, reworked a number of times. One of the, it's an old hymn, uh, Ah Holy Jesus, which I think is Lutheran in terms mm -hmm. of where it comes from. Um, and there's a beautiful recording of it where it's clearly just him and three or four friends sitting on a matter of microphone and nothing lines up. It's, it's everybody right. is kind of sight reading their part and it's just, it's not, um, it's not an arrangement. It's literally just the hymn as it is in the hymnal, but it's not precise. Everybody kind of breathes at different times and comes in at a different time. And the soprano is like a beat behind for a while. It's beautiful. It really mm. just opens everything up to this very different space than if it had been just precisely moving together. Mm. But I think that's a really wonderful thing that we don't allow ourselves as musicians to do a whole lot. And it mm. feels wrong a lot of the time, but it's much more interesting. We could always ask the question whether Mozart would have liked it, I guess. And I mean, I, yeah. I always kind of feel these people would have said, okay, try it, see what it sounds like. You know. I, I would think they they would. I like I. You can't uh, place words in the a dead composer's mouth, I suppose. But you know, they liked sound and they liked music and they liked innovation. What innovation was for them was different than what we made and say it is now. But they liked new sounds. They were composers. Mm. It was yeah. Well, we got one more piece to listen to, um, and that is by Anne Southam. Um, called Network. Um, uh, tell us about this one. And is this is this the Alkali group as well? This is also Alkali. Yeah. So um, one of the uh, one of the caveats of being a, a university conductor is you can't uh, share any of the recordings because um, they're students and there's copyrights and blah blah blah. Yeah. blah, blah. So unfortunately, I couldn't share any of my actual. Uh, students work, although they play lovely in a lot of things. But um, this is the let me, let me just let me just say before you say this, I, I did watch some of the ones that you kindly sent me, which we can't play. And I have to say, there were two brilliant pieces in it. That 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 one it was um, this one called New Cosmology. We'll talk briefly about this because I, I'm yeah. sure we can talk about it. One was called New Cosmologies. I think mm -hmm. it was. Um, I don't know who wrote it. I couldn't pick that up from the thingy, but. Um, it was fantastic and and i i loved it it was the one with the ripping paper and people mm -hmm. stomping around doing all that and it and it was it was just great and and i think that was that was fantastic but as you rightly predicted i love the is it frederick shevsky yeah a bit uh coming together mm -hmm. and i have to say i absolutely adored that and and i think you knew that when you sent it to me <laughs> but it was Absolutely brilliant. Maybe you'd just like to say a brief word about that before we go back to Anne Southam about the Shevsky. Totally. Yeah, so the, the Frederick Shevsky is uh, coming together, and uh, we did it with my full university ensemble and the Akali ensemble, so there were 30-odd people on stage. And it's 20-something uh, minutes mm. long. The score is 20-something pages long, and everybody plays from the exact same thing. And it's... Um, it's a tone row, so it's a, a six-note pattern that um, 
gets repeated over and over and over and over and over again in uh, different iterations. And the whole thing is a palindrome. So the two, uh, the 22 pages, there's a middle point at page 11 um, where it splits and then it goes in reverse. Uh, and the tone row gets uh, re-put together. So over the first 11 pages, the tone row gets devolved and spread out. And then over the following 11 pages, it gets kind of reconfigured and put back together. Um, the text is from um, an inmate at the Attica prison. And so uh, during the riots at the Attica prison, this uh, uh, man who was actually, uh, he kind of found himself at the Attica prison. This is as strange a story as, as you can think, but he was involved in the um, apartheid riots in South Africa and was incarcerated in South Africa and then was transferred somehow because he was an American citizen to um, Attica. And so he then found himself at the riots in Attica and he wrote these um, poems that he would send to a magazine to be published. And so the text from this piece is taken from um, the writings of this, this poet. Um, and so the um, speaker speaks over the orchestra uh, and there's a poetry uh, element to the whole thing. Um, but it's an endurance piece. It's very difficult to keep together and keep playing. Um, we had done this once with Alkali just by ourselves. Um, and it took us, you know, three or four rehearsals to, to be able to play it together, uh, to be able to play it with 30 something musicians took many more rehearsals, <laughs> just get everybody, um, at the same place at the same time. It's one of those things that if it goes off the rails, there's no way to come back. There is no way to signal where you are. And so you just have to hope uh, that you keep it together. Mm. We had never played it all the way through uh, until this uh, performance because wow. we have very tight timelines. Um, and so the students had played it through, Alkali had played it through. We had never played it through together until on stage at the wow. concert. Um, and, uh, there's a moment, uh, it's about seven minutes in where it, it really probably could have all come apart. It didn't, we managed to continue the next, uh, 15 or so minutes. Um, but I would, I would encourage everybody to listen to, there's a really phenomenal recording, uh, because I can't play this one it's bad, but that's okay. Um, there's a really phenomenal recording by, uh, an ensemble called eighth blackbird. An eighth blackbird is a American group and they do, um, uh, very similar music to what we play with Alkali. They do a lot of new music, a lot of graphic scores, a lot of new commissions. Um, and they do a really phenomenal recording of Frederick Shevsky's coming together. Um, that is uh, a lot of fun. It's a very, uh, overwhelming work. It feels yeah. very full body. Um, and I can say it, I've listened to it as a, as an audience person and it feels, um, oppressive and like, it's never going to end and it feels overwhelming and, uh, very uncomfortable. The text is kind of difficult at points. Um, and it's, uh, like maybe listening to Philip Glass, like you have to really oh. allow your brain to just sit with it, even though it's, it's hard at times. Um, but I can say as a, as a musician who's played it as a clarinetist and then as a conductor who's conducted it, 
it's equally as difficult just to <laughs> stay in the space with it. Um, so go listen to Eighth Blackbird because uh, they do a wonderful recording. That sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I found the tension in it to be phenomenal. I mean, it kind of just builds all the way through the piece and and it never stopped. It's just kind of relentless. And, it, and it, I guess yeah. if you like somebody like uh, Giorgio Leggetti or, or mm, Steve yeah. Reich, you're going to like this kind of incessant piece that keeps on at you all the time. And it is incessant. And it um, every time you uh, turn a page as, as a player or as a conductor, you think, oh, my God, like there's there's still <laughs> 10 more pages or nine more pages. And you feel like that page took what felt like 10 minutes to get through. Yeah. And then you turn the page and there's still another 10. Feels really relentless. But obviously, I mean, that's the, the effect yeah. of being in prison. And, and the st students, I must say, did a fantastic job. So and 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 the conductor was brilliant, I must say. <laughs> so anyway. Let's go back to that was fantastic. Yes. Great advert for that. Um, it really was good um, and worth seeing, certainly. Let's go back to uh, Anne Southam Network. Hmm. So Anne Southam is a Canadian uh, composer who, who passed away a number of years ago. Um, and she was kind of um, one of our Canadiana composers. Um, she wrote a ton of music, uh, really phenomenal music, actually kind of in um, a similar style to, to Glass and uh, to Reich and Ligeti and a number of people, but um, she was famous for a set of pieces called Glass Houses, um, which are really beautiful. They're, they're pieces for piano, and um, many times marimbists will do them. They, they kind of transfer well to to um, But this piece is a piece called Networks, and it's um, maybe as the, the title implies, it's uh, a set of notes on a page and two people get to play at a time uh, and you predetermine the order. And so um, you just kind of randomly pick that it will be, uh, say, flute and violin and then violin and flute and then flute and percussion and then percussion and saxophone and saxophone and clarinet. There always has to be one person that carries over into the mm. next duet. Uh, it's also timed. So everything is in 30 second intervals, and then there's a switch. And so each person will play for one minute at a time because they play in each duet. Um, and then they take a break. And so everybody plays for a minute at a time with one minute overlapping. Um, and the only other instructions that are given are pitches. So Anne sets out uh, a number of pitches uh, and they're just in little square boxes uh, mm. that you read. Um, and the only other thing she says other than pitches is, um, if you are playing a sustained note or rhythm and it doesn't prescribe what either is. Um, but if the box has a line under it, you play a rhythm. If it has a capital letter, you play a sustained note. Uh, and that's really it. And so you really listen to, um, your duet partner mm. and, and you really play off what they're doing. And so uh, maybe like we were talking about the Holly Winter, that um, the winter was much, much more prescribed. It was a lot mm. more boundaries and guidelines uh, to work within. This is very few. And so you have to interact with your, with your musician in a lot more real way. Fantastic. Well, let's take a listen. 
Okay, great. Well, that was Networks by Anne Southam. Um, just to say that one of the things you mentioned about it was was about how she wrote um, sort of music of the area, um, I guess. And and I, as soon as I heard this, I had the feeling that I was in some northern clime in some <laughs> old, you know, uh, place. I mean, it really does have that feeling to it. And, and I, I don't know quite how she does it, but it certainly, you know, you certainly feel you want to sort of, you know, wrap up and go out in the storm kind of thing. There's a there's a feeling often in in uh, Canadian composers of expanse, I would say. Like there's a real mm. feeling of mm. how large this country is, and I don't know how we do that. I don't know how we <laughs> we convey that, but like there is a feeling in um, a lot of Canadian music of uh, the the kind of global north, the like wide open. Mm. We don't have, I mean, where I live, we don't have tundra, but like in Canada, we have tundra. Like it's, it feels very, um, 
both bundle up but but wide yeah, yeah. and it, i mean the airiness and the sort of openness to it yeah it does it's like kind of prairie or something or mm. you know or you say tundra and this kind of thing yeah very interesting very interesting well, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I, I do have a, a, a one other question I have to ask before we go, because we, we it's the one we always have to address, okay? Um, and I think it's only fair that you should answer this as well. So coming from the queer community, how does being queer affect your music? I think about this a lot, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I I tend to think that um being a queer musician sets you up to uh both have different expectations about what uh can happen and and should happen and does happen but gives you uh many many more things to draw on and i think where for me as a conductor and as a musicologist that comes out um is in uh performance programming repertoire things like that that I tend to have um, a different set of things that I'm drawing on. I tend to have a different set of repertoire, interests, crossovers, um, uh, multidisciplinary things um, that I incorporate into what I'm doing. I also tend to think that, uh, you know, increasingly in the work that I do with university students, we have a very high queer population in music schools. That's not terribly new, um, but I think there is uh, a much more immediate rapport that you get as a queer conductor with your queer musicians. Um, that just, it's an immediate trust, an immediate um, feeling of being safe in that space that allows them to play. And even when you're playing something that's really not queer, like maybe Holst, you know, which is beautiful music, but it, I mean, I've sat in a lot of orchestras and went ensembles as a, as a musician where the conductor was a, you know, mid fifties straight white guy who had zero things in common with, me or the other queer people around and I, I didn't want to play for them. I did. It was really difficult sometimes to like be expressive or to make a beautiful sound or to feel like I could play without, um, you know, being judged harshly or that like the sound I was going to create was going to be, um, interpreted a different way than I wanted it to be or something. But the number of times where I've played for queer conductors or, as a queer conductor and I get to work with musicians who are queer, um, it just feels more open and relaxed and really much more comfortable and safe. I, I had the, the pleasure every now and again, uh, we don't run it regularly at the moment, but um, I do a queer ensemble, Halifax Queer Ensemble. And before the pandemic, we used to have weekly rehearsals, but we just did our first rehearsal post-pandemic, we did a, a one-day thing, um, and it was small, and it was really ragtag group of musicians. Some people were professionals, some hadn't played in 15 years, some, like, kind of played their instrument, but, <laughs> like, really were not professionals in any way, shape, or form. 
Um, but we we immediately got to make good music together. There was no um, adjustment period. There was no um, posturing. There was no um, weird feeling of hierarchy. There was no um, oddness around being uh, like visibly or verbally queer in that space that people could just sit down and make sound together and make music and we laughed and it was fun and we uh, did harder music than they were comfortable playing and we did easier music but none of that really mattered it was just about um, being in that space together and there's a really like for me both both in my, my work as like a, a queer person conducting non-queer things or as a queer person conducting very queer things there's a really powerful feeling of queering that space whatever that space is it's important to me to uh be a university conductor and temporarily queer that concert hall that feels really important if it's important for the seven people who think it's important great that's that's enough that's fine for me it doesn't need to be super important for the entire audience or the entire ensemble but even if it's just important for the the few kids in the ensemble and their friends in the audience that's it that's all i i really am concerned about we did a we did a show six years ago i guess seven years ago where we went to a, another city we brought the ensemble and we um were working with a um trans poet um who wrote a bunch of poetry for the the show and we went we worked with a high school group so we were at the university group and we came in and we got to work with this high school group the high school group was huge it was like a band of 80 80 kids we were small we were like 25 and we had this wonderful poet join us and uh we did the show it was fun it was great and then afterwards this group of uh six or seven queer high schoolers came up and said um we've never worked with a queer uh, musician before that was phenomenal um we've never played a queer composer before that was phenomenal and we've never met a trans poet before and that was phenomenal and even for those seven kids mm. that's all i care about that's that's it mm. that means so much to me um that they got to see themselves represented on stage that's it i think that's a great line to finish with <laughs> um i'm sure we could analyze all of that for a long time but i think that that really sums up i think for a lot of us um how we feel about um in all our walks of life about uh, being queer and and how we affect the space around so I think that's a great way to leave, Jacob. Thank you so much for your time. For the, for the listeners, uh, normal service will be resumed next month when we will have another guest. Trust me, we, you, Jacob is never interviewing me about music. <laughs> so thank you again, Jacob. Oh, my pleasure. It was so much fun to, uh, I mean, it's always fun to get to guests, but it was fun to just talk with us. It was great. Yeah, sounds good. Anyway, thanks, everyone. Bye.
So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jacob and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.